Hello and welcome to the Bite Size Gaming Podcast, a podcast that's serving up a host of RPG topics to get you through your week. My name is Zach and the hosts joining me this evening are John Christian, Troy Sandlin, and we're also joined by a special guest, David Barentine. Everybody say hi. Hello. 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 So let's break down how each podcast is going to work. There'll be four courses, appetizers, main course, palate cleanser, and dessert. Each course tackles a different angle on the world of RPGs, and we'll cover exactly what those angles are when we get to each segment. You guys ready? Yep. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So in appetizers, we're going to do a uh, community pulse type segment where one of us is going to bring two to three topics for the rest of us to discuss that have happened uh, in the past few weeks within the community. I think, John, you've got several topics for us today. I do. Yeah. So uh, I think the first one that I wanted to kind of cover was the the recent release of Explorer's Guide to Wildmount. And not necessarily about the product itself, because I still need to get my hands on it and, and dig into it myself. But more along the lines of how it's its impact of being introduced into the community uh, and kind of the, the way that it was received by the community itself. So uh, specifically uh, for the old timers and some of the, the new timers that uh, are looking for those games like Dark Sun or that set those settings like Dragonlance and Greyhawk and things like that, they didn't get what they wanted. You know, it, they're, we're still pretty campaign setting poor whenever it comes from uh, Watsi as a fi- fifth edition release schedule. Uh, and so yet another product is being released uh, and scheduled for release with uh, that has, it's kind of like the critical role crowd specific. And so what I really wanted to do is kind of get my finger on the pulse of, uh, of you guys and see what were your thoughts on that, uh, kind of the reasoning behind why they did it and your specific reactions to uh, uh, whether that was a good good decision for them to make or not, I can uh, I can jump in on this one. Um, I specifically think it's a good idea, um, and I, I generally think it's a good idea because this is a brand new setting to D and D. It's a brand new, like one hundred percent, and it's the first thing they've done for fifth edition that's outside of it. Uh, but you already have Dark Sun, you have Greyhawk, you have various other settings that you can already draw from from previous editions like 3rd, 4th, 2nd edition, there's already lore and stuff out there. This just gives people another setting that they can either dive into if they're interested or pull from. I'm more of a pull from sort of crowd because I prefer my own homebrew game over uh, playing inside somebody else's, uh, mostly because I have full control of the lore at that point. So this just gives me another official setting from Wizards of the Coast that I can pull bits and pieces from that I prefer and enjoy and insert into my own campaign. And I'm going to, I'll dive in and say, um, as a person who listens to Critical Role, um, I was excited by the book. I like that it's an official book this time um, and not something that they've done on the side. Um, And I think that, I mean, it's always been, I mean, Dark Sun was was an original setting at one point. Eberron was an original setting at one point. the reason that there's so many settings that we love is that they are willing to make new settings whenever they feel like the community is ready for them. And I think wild mount is the next one on that list. Yeah. I actually, uh, I actually got to play test, uh, the wild mount book. And, uh, um, oh, nice. from, from what I can, from what I have gathered, um, and what I can tell the, the people that are upset that they didn't get their old setting renewed for fifth edition, this book was happening, whether it came from Watsi or not. 
Um, it just happened that Wizard sees the uh, the appeal of Critical Role, obviously, um, and they offered to help uh, distribute the book to a wider audience than what they had before on the the Taldore book, and also they're going to you know gain new fans that mm-hmm. way. Um, so yeah, the, this was going to happen regardless. I don't, if I remember correctly, I don't think there was any Wizards writers that were on the book other than, you know, going through it, giving it the once over after it was written. It was mostly uh, people that uh, Matt Mercer gathered to himself to do the book. Yeah, I think you're so right it's, So it's not like they were using resources from Wizards and pulling people off of the top secret Dark Sun project that's going to be released next year or, you know, something like that. Is that official? Are you on record with that (laughs) as a (laughs) playtester? It, it, what? (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot like the Acquisitions Incorporated book in that respect, right? I mean, they were already making it. It was already in development. And then Wizards came on and said, okay, we'd like to make this official. Could we put our stamp on it and give you some of our publishing resources? Which I think is really smart, right? Because... You're in the the renaissance that we're enjoying right now uh, over the last several years is in largest part probably because of fifth edition being uh, as as well received as it has been by the old and the new crowd. But also a lot of the streaming um, services and um, social media impact that's that's been garnered from it. Right, critical role being the obviously the biggest impact. For uh, for streaming games now, and so all those people are are ready to dig, you know, dive headfirst into the game as a result of everything that they've seen for the last several years from from Mercer and his and his crew. So it stands to reason that the that Watsy would want to capitalize on that and create some synergy there. They did the same thing with you know uh, with Acquisitions Incorporated. Every opportunity that they get to spread the brand out and to attach themselves to other brands, it strengthens the brand itself. And so I'm, I don't own Dungeons and & Dragons, and no one owns Dungeons & Dragons, right? So that's kind of – I hope that that's what people are going to start getting from this is that the old schoolers and the new schoolers, that there doesn't need to be – Mexico, we're going to go from edition wars to – uh, to like the old old guys versus the the, the new the new people that, that keep coming in right the, the, that's the last thing we need we just got rid of the edition wars kind of maybe I don't know the last thing that we need to do is, is to in- introduce you know the the I new grognard like, okay yeah. grognard that's that's going to be the next thing that's that's stated to us right? so. this, this is the setting wars the, the setting the wars continuation right? of the edition wars yes. exactly Hashtag so okay critter. <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> so I get it, right? Because I'm a Dragonlance guy. I love Dragonlance. And so if Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman are out there, if you're listening, just know that I love you from the deepest parts of my soul. I am a kinder. Uh, don't tell any of my dwarf friends or anyone else like that, right? I'm totally a, I'm totally a Tass on the inside. Uh, and Joe Manganiello, he, he, he agrees with me. Uh, but, um, I mean, I, I get it. So I don't own I don't own it. And what I, what's most important for me, really, is that as many people as possible enjoy this hobby that I love so much and that I've gotten so much out of. So if it means 
waiting another year for a Dragonlance book, man, I'm okay. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to my closet, I'm going to dig up all of my third edition, second edition, and AD&D stuff from Dragonlance, and I'll put my own stuff together in the meantime. Not a big deal. <laughs> I love it. What else do you have for us, John? Yeah, you bet. Uh, so the other thing, I, I dig through Kickstarter quite a bit, and one that came up in my feed uh, this week was... Uh, more magic items for 5e, the Griffin's Saddlebag, book one. 200-page mm. compendium for 365 game-ready illustrated items for 5th edition. And the book is only the beginning. There are cards and charts and loot tables and uh, like, all this stuff that's being released for. And it looks absolutely gorgeous. Uh, the artwork is on par with anything that's in the DMG for these items. Uh, I actually had to go and double check to make sure that the the guy that is heading this wasn't one of the original art designers for Dungeons and Dragons Fifth Edition. Hmm. Uh, but I wanted to make sure that I brought it up to you guys. I don't know if you have an opportunity to take a look at it yet or not, but it looks absolutely fantastic. This is something that a lot of good production value that's in this. That seems like it could be easily dovetailed into uh, any setting that I'm working out of or any game that I'm playing in at my table. Yeah, I. David and I, of course, uh, uh, been on Kickstarter recently, <laughs> and um, yeah. we uh, have had the opportunity to look at it. And I think I think you're exactly right. And everything you said, the artwork's gorgeous. I mean, they're doing insanely well in their Kickstarter. Um, and I think that there is a spot on most people's shelves for a book of magic items. Um, again, David talked about earlier how you know Wildmount's a good book to pull from for homebrew. Like, what's just as just as good? I mean, I've got six. I've got six monster manuals sitting on my shelf, but not a single one of magic items. And I'm handing out magic items practically every session at this point. So it's, right. I think that I think that it's some they found an untapped resource, especially if you're looking outside the Dungeon Masters Guild. Yep, and to uh, to what you're saying, magic items can start to get stale after a while when you run into the same winged boots over and over and over and over. <laughs> so it helps to have something else to pull from. I, I tend to craft my own magic items uh, so that I don't keep handing out the same things. But I'm also crafting world lore. I'm crafting the adventure. I'm crafting NPCs. I'm crafting groups and organizations and guilds and quest lines and everything else. So it does help to have some other resource to pull from. So I'm not like I'm not 100% crafting everything from scratch. And just having something that's simply magic items that can range from your common magic items to your artifact level magic items is beautiful to have for a dungeon master or game master. And this guy that's putting this out there has actually put out a lot of stuff already on Reddit. Mm. So I've had a chance to kind of survey some of the things that are going into this book and a lot of the art. Yeah, I agree. It looks so much like it comes directly from an official source book and just the mechanics seem very balanced from what I've read. Um, things that I've seen put out there already love it so uh anything else you have for us john or are those the two things for today that's all i've got okay sounds good let's move on to the main course so in the main course we're going to talk a little broader topic we're going to sit on it for a little while and um and kind of explore it as a round table uh today we have our special guest david barentine and so we're going to interview him he's going to tell us about his kickstarter what's going on there and then we're also going to kind of fold into that discussion a larger discussion on uh quest design quest building within your game 
Um, so David, why don't you take a few minutes and kind of give us an overview of the kit Kickstarter, how it's done and uh, what you're, what you're presenting to people. All right. So what I'm presenting to people is kind of a plethora of different things. Uh, primarily because we don't see this out there very often. It is a level one through level 20 adventure that starts with you investigating rumors of missing children on the back alley streets of the slums and ends with your characters rising up against a tyrannical demigod in the shadow realm that is threatening to break open into the material plane and march armies across uh, the world to take it over. It becomes your job as the players in this to put a stop to that creature before it can have its grasp sort of around the material plane. Um, but speaking of uh, creating campaign settings and whatnot, this also comes with a minor campaign setting to introduce you to the world of Oranth and specifically the continent of Oranthos, uh, where the adventure takes place. Because you will, as characters in this story, be hopping from one city to the next city to the next city to the next city. You're going to be exploring a really a wide swath of geography so that you get a feel for the world that you're playing in. Uh, it's also going to contain several player options. And at this point, I think we've unlocked all except for one set of player options in our stretch goals. But those options include new races, new subclasses, new backgrounds, uh, new magic items, new spells. And for the DM, there's going to be a small bestiary in the back of the book of custom created monsters as well. That's awesome. And full disclosure, cool. I... I am helping uh, David on this project, so um, I kind of know what there is to know about it. I thought he'd be a really good guest, but what do you, what questions do the does Troy and John have for you, David? Well, so I guess I'll start off with this one. So, um, so where did the the seed for the idea of the Kickstarter and the the uh, the product itself come from? Is this like a byproduct of your home game and the homebrew stuff that you've already done? You've already run all of this stuff before, or was this something that was brand new out the gate? Oh no, this is this is definitely the uh, uh, love child of my home world adventures. Um, we took uh, the starter set when it first came out in fifth edition, played through it, and then immediately immediately after we got through the starter set, my friends and I jumped into a homebrew game, which became this game. It didn't start out like this, but it ended up becoming this. And what I did here was, while I was crafting the story for them, and they were playing through it, I found a good balance of, I would craft this city for three months while they played in the previous one that I just crafted for three months. And then when they would get up to the one that I was just finishing, I would move on to the next chapter and start crafting that while they played in that one. Um, and this continued for about four cities, four or five cities. Um, as that was happening... I developed a writing style. I obsessively took notes on everything. I crafted everything out 100% to the point where it was almost ingrained in me what they were about to do when they got there. So no matter what they did, I was ready for whatever choice they did and it could kind of guide them back towards a funnel towards the uh, boss of that chapter, which would then lead them towards the next chapter. Mm, that's great. I guess my question is, uh... Zach, Zach, Zach has told me a little, little bit about this, and yes, I have, I have pledged already. Um, so <laughs> same. There's, there's that. But uh, something about uh, he, he explained that the world is alive, 
it doesn't matter what the characters are doing, there's stuff still going on in the background. It, but it you you have a uh, if I if I'm remembering correctly, you have some kind of a system or something that 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 facilitates this. Is that is that correct? What Zach's specifically talking about, what I've heard from other people that have uh, reviewed kind of the initial chapter of this that I put out for uh, testing, is what makes the world feel fully alive is the way that the quest system's put together. And this is just how I tend to go about writing quests. But what I like to do is start with a point A, a point B, then throw a handful of things in a map and figure out how everything connects back to each other so that you end up from point A to point B no matter where you go on this map. And what that causes is several of the NPCs have more flavor that way because they have their own goals, they have their own motivation. And if you don't do quest A and instead go to quest B, then the NPC from quest A gets one other thing that happens versus just staying there stagnant waiting for you to come back to quest a and do it or maybe you missed out on a piece of information because you didn't do quest b and you chose to do quest a instead and because of that you don't go into quest c with the full amount of information that you could possibly have but the idea is everything is kind of shifting and moving based off of player interaction not in a massive way but just enough that it feels like the world is reacting to the choices that the characters are making while they're in one of the cities yeah it's that idea right of of online rpgs where you you go talk to a quest giver an npc and then they're still there the next time you pass by and then they're there again when you pass by again and again and again and again and if you go talk to them they have the same quest in line well at least from my experience uh reading through david's stuff that's not the, always the case here. You can go talk to someone, but then as you're going and doing other things, if you come back and talk to them again, things may have shifted, and just the belief or the understanding that that might have happened changes something within the player's brain and lets them say, we've got to consider the full ramifications of what we're doing more consistently. And it's not major NPCs either. There are some smaller NPCs that have different things that they have prepped to give you as far as information if you go out and meet somebody at uh, the across the street uh, meadery and they give you like a list of three rumors that you can follow if you follow a couple of these and you find out a, a bit more about these they won't really expand anymore on those rumors instead they'll expand on rumors that kind of lead you back towards other main points in the story that are just vague enough to kind of bite at your imagination that makes you want to go and investigate. And the rumors that this person tells you only changes based off of what you do in the story. Hmm. I like the sound of that. <laughs> so after so after playing through through your campaign setting, I will be able to take this concept and lift it out and throw it into my next campaign, yes? Yeah, you, you if you kind of pay attention to how things change in the story, then, yeah, you'll be able to see it's very methodical. It's very thought out, and it just involves making certain that your prep comes together in such a way that if A happens, then B happens. It's almost binary on a micro scale, yeah. but it seems more impressive on a macro scale when you see it's happening to 
five to eight different people at a time in the background. Yeah, I think it's I think it's goes back to our discussion of Wild Mount, right? Like this is a book and this is a, a system that you can pull things from. If you're a homebrew person, you're going to be able to see bare minimum. You're going to see this template, this outline with plenty of examples that David's constructed for how to do these living, breathing quests and NPCs. And you're going to be able to pull that out, have plenty of examples then about how to place it into your own world. Um, having said that, I think that the the story, plot, campaign that he's put together is interesting of it, in and of itself and worth running your table through as is. It goes back into that illusion of choice too. A lot of people a lot of people want choice, but if you're given too much choice it causes analysis paralysis and there's too much yes. to happen to the point where nothing happens at all. So right. The secret here is, isn't so much that everybody's changing, it's that everybody's changing in such a way that they start to overlap and point you back towards main quests. Um, I'm going to use an example from the third chapter of the adventure here. It seems like such a minor thing, but this minor thing leads you into a major thing and kind of forces you to deal with a main story point. You come into the third uh, chapter, you get into the city, and after you deal with a couple of small things right from the get-go, you can kind of explore the city itself. And one of the places, places that you'll find is a Fletcher shop. And because the city itself is kind of shut down in a self-quarantine because everything on the outside of the city is getting incredibly dark and they're trying to just destroy the city itself, the guy that works the Fletchery is no longer able to make uh, creations to give out. And one of the things that he can specifically do is make magic ammunition. Hmm. So what he says is, look, I can't get out to do this. We can't get anybody in here to restock my store. So can you go to Villa Velanova? There is really good uh, product that I could use stationed there. If you can go get, I don't know, a bundle of five, ten pounds of just wood from the forest that exists right outside the back of this place and bring it back to me, I can craft you 1d10 magic bits of ammunition. Seems simple enough. You know, really clean. Definitely feels like a side quest, because it kind of is. But when you go to Villa Bellanova, you stumble over a major plot point, and now you find yourself in the middle of trying to work your way through this main story point so that you can get to a small piece to stop or kind of fill in a side quest. And that's something that you wouldn't even, you, you can't stumble across it unless you're engaging with this side quest. It, you'll stumble across something else somewhere else, right? Right. That's, that's the idea at least. <clears throat> yeah. Very cool. So David, tell us how, how is your Kickstarter doing? Where are we at on that? So the Kickstarter itself is doing a lot better than I was initially expecting. I, uh, I for one, thought that I would have a hard time getting even to the colored print. But in uh, 48 hours, we had the book funded, and another day or so after that, we already hit the full color print for it. We are sitting now, we're about $50 away from hitting eight grand, and we are getting incredibly close to turning the soft cover into a hard cover. Uh, we are looking at about 11.5 being the hardcover uh, hit. So when we can hit that, everyone that has backed at the softcover level gets a hardcover instead. Prices don't go up. You just get a hardcover instead of a softcover. But we have to be able to afford that first. 
Yeah, and and this episode is going to come out a little bit later, so we may have already hit the hardcover copy by the time you're listening to this. So that's something that you'll want to check out. The Kickstarter will definitely still be going on, um, but I'm sure we'll at least have gone through numerous other stretch goals um, on our way towards the end. Anything else you want to tell them about that uh, uh, Kickstarter before we we move on, David? Um, A few things I'd like to tell the uh, kind of everybody out there that's listening currently is if you're interested in sort of the digital aspect or even printing some of the minis, we have virtual tabletop minis and also we have printable paper minis that you can get by backing the Kickstarter at the book level right now. But only right now can you get those as sort of free add-ons if you back at the book level. After the Kickstarter campaign has come to a close, you can still get a chance to add those on as individual items to your own purchase. But only for book backers at this moment while the campaign is going, do you still get those for free. So I'd like, uh, I just want to put that out there in case anybody's interested in getting the free parts of this as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Very cool. All right. Well, uh, appreciate you coming to the podcast today and presenting that to us. Um, feel free to stick around, and we're going to dive into the last two segments of this thing. All right. Section number three is what we're calling palate cleanser, or the moral of the story. One of us is going to tell a story from one of our tables, and then we'll kind of discuss the question or the dilemma that it raised. Um uh, so today I'm going to dive in and I'm going to tell a little story that just happened this last week at my table. Uh, and I really want to get your guys' thoughts on it because it was something that I wrestled with and I wrestle with every time. Um, and uh, I kind of have a way that I do it, but I wanted to see what you guys thought. Um, so the story is that I have a guest player. We're in the middle of this virus epidemic and we have tons of players out there, tons of DMs out there who are trying to get used to the idea of gaming online for the very first time. Um, I stumbled across a DM who is wanting to learn Roll20, and I said, why don't you come play in my game and get a sense for Roll20 through that, and if you have any questions, you can ask them afterwards, and we'll go from there, right? Uh, so the problem or the dilemma came in who does he play, what character does he play, how do I introduce him into the story? And with him especially, and with where they were at, it didn't make a whole lot of sense for it to be some random person. Um, so what I ended up doing was grabbing, uh, they were actually at in the uh, Drawn and Courtier Inn in Red Larch. Um, not a not a acquisitions campaign, but they happened to be there. And so I had the player make his interpretation of Jim Dark Magic. <laughs> And my players are now currently level nine. And when we were talking about it, I'm like, I think you'll have a lot of fun with this. I think my players will have an interesting time playing or or, uh, bouncing things off of a wizard like this, a ridiculous wizard. Uh, The problem became that Jim Dark Magic really needed to be of a much higher level than the the players themselves. And... um, I struggle with that every time I do it because I'm if I'm going to let this person play, now all of a sudden I'm also letting them be, um, uh, if not godlike, at least much more powerful than the average player in my regular party. And I wonder every time, is that something reasonable? Am I, am I playing favorites to the guest? I know different strokes for different folks and different tables, but what are your guys' thoughts on 
allowing different players at your table to be at a much higher level than other players at your table? Uh, I think a lot of that has to do with the maturity level of the table that you're at. You know, if you have a good rapport with the, pl- the players that you have at your table and they understand that that's a component of the game, I don't think you're going to have a problem with it at all. Uh, but if you haven't had that dialogue with them ahead of time saying, look, there's going to be a Gandalf in this in this party. Sorry, guys. Yes. There's going to be an Elminster, <laughs> right? <laughs> one, of, one of you is going to be chucking fireballs while everybody else is using wooden sticks to fend off goblins, right? So, uh, and then having really, really good, like making a really good decision as to who that person is that you're going to imbue with that level of power over the other characters, other players at the table, uh, I think is equally as important. Uh, mm. Making sure that you've got somebody that's going to wield that power responsibly and not use it as uh, an opportunity to be at the center of attention for every single um, challenge that the, the party, the party place, the, the party um, faces. Right. I think that's, that's what, those are the hardest things to kind of, to navigate for those two things for me. I think, okay. Flipping on this decision. I'm not a big fan of this one because it kind of sets up one player to have the Mary Sue problem. Because mm. even though they're a guest player, they've come in, they're higher level, they are at a point where there's nothing you can really do to them. And because of that, the party can hide behind that and say there's nothing you can do to us because there's mm. nothing you can do to them. If you want to raise the stakes to battle one of them, you potentially raise the stakes to the point where you wipe out everybody else. And that, that can diminish the return on fun for everybody in the group. So I'm not the biggest fan of doing it doing it in that aspect. But, and here's the flip part of it. I don't think it's a bad idea to do the opposite of it where you bring somebody in that's at a lower level and now you have maybe an NPC, or not an NPC, a character that is three or four levels below them and yeah, they're starting adventure, they have some skills, but now it's the party's turn to protect said character from being killed because maybe that that character is important for uh some political aspect and you have to get them from point a to point b Hmm. it adds a little more layer of intensity for the party as a whole because one person can contribute but if they get too into it they could potentially die and then everybody else has to act as kind of a human shield and now everybody has to deal with consequences you're throwing a wrench into the party's regular plans instead of giving them a a cannon right yeah I, I like that idea. Um, I think it kind of depends on what type of player that guest player is, um, and what can you build around that. If if this guest is an awesome role player, and it's at a part in your campaign where you could make him a Gandalf, but they're not going to fight anything. They're actually just going to get information. Or, or something, you know, an audience with the king in Gandalf is taking you to, to the king to talk. There's, there's not going to be any. Oh well, he can throw <laughs> fireballs. Well, we've got sticks. It's, it's all just a role play, and then that person can be that super powerful character, overshadowing the player characters, but you never get to see it because you know, you don't need fireballs. Well, hopefully you don't need fireballs when you're talking to the king. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Well, that's, that's, that's kind of why I brought this up today is because I knew that there would be a variance of opinion. And I, you know, again, that's why there's a conflict in me every time. And, and sometimes the players or the guests that come into my games are same level. I don't think that I've ever had any that are lower level. That's a good idea, um, David. Um, I really like cool. that. I'm going to have to play with that a little bit, noodle around with it. But um, I, I definitely say give it a shot. We What we did for our game is our party, after we finished the Knights of the Shadow Realm story at my table, we were level 20. And I brought my niece in, who, is, who was 7 at the time, and she came in with a level 6 druid. And then she became the center of attention because they had to get her from uh, one area deal with a quest and then bring her back and it was important that she dealt with the quest because she was part of a guild that had to be there and be present when the quest was taken care of and it turned into one of my players is playing a uh, centaur it turned into her riding the centaur through battle and everybody had a blast <laughs> oh that's awesome that's cool okay yeah well i mean right there i've got something that uh i'm going to be pulling into my games 100 percent. that's a really good that's a really good thought well and just to, because we talked about uh, Critical Role earlier, um, uh, I present to you, the, you know, the the epic character of Spurt, the oh, Cobalt. Oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, Eleven weeks! Knows, yeah. <laughs> everybody knows Spurt, and Days. I'm pretty sure he didn't out-level anybody. No. No. <laughs> that is a perfect example of this. So, you got two great examples uh, of... of of this working really well and being super memorable at a table. Maybe, maybe if you've got a guest player, try to keep them around longer than uh, <laughs> than spurt well, on the average game. But either way, <laughs> all right. Well, hey, let's move into our final section of the episode. Um, this is our dessert. These are hidden gems, tidbits, things that we fell in love this week. It could be a podcast. It could be a Discord channel, a product, an actual play on YouTube, a uh, even just a tweet or something like that. Basically, just a little tidbit that you found this week that you say, hey, this is this is really cool, really exciting. Um, let's see. Uh, John, why don't you start us off and tell us what you found. Yeah, so um, I'm, I'm not really a, a toy guy anymore. I mean, that's really a lie, I guess. I've got so many <laughs> miniatures. and oh, Come on. Let's save Liar. it. Save it. Everybody, everybody knows what's up. Uh, but uh, this is not, I've, I've never thought of myself as getting like the little desktop toys, right? Like little Funko Pop miniatures and figures. Yeah. Uh, until Watsy released through uh, Funko Pop the gelatinous cube. Um, mm. I'm in love. I love this thing. And uh, it's, well, it's not mine anymore. It's my three-year-old's now, honestly. <laughs> uh, she uh, she snagged it. And I don't know where it is anymore. But I did love it for the 15 minutes that I had it. And uh, it's I think it's brilliant. <laughs> Again, we were talking about that like cross-pollinization and Getting the brand out there to to the to the rest of the world, uh, I think it's great. It's been it was released specifically for exclusively exclusively for uh, GameStop, uh, but it's also sold on the online through the Funko uh, storefront too. And I, I love this thing; it's absolutely it's hilarious, and it's it'll be a permanent fixture on my desk as soon as I find it again. Yeah, I would say that it's it's almost become like the baby Yoda for D and D at the moment. Like <laughs> yeah. everybody's posting their picture of it, and it's getting a you know. I've even seen artwork of it, which is just crazy. Um, yeah, it's definitely it's definitely something that has taken our community by a storm recently. Yeah, I love it. Um, I'm going to throw out a podcast that I have fallen in love with this week. Actually, um, High Shelf Gaming. High Shelf Gaming. 
Um, really, really concise, very clean, very high production value podcast. Um, they talk a lot about RPGs and board games, and specifically, they kind of focus their discussion around the idea of those games being played at conventions, or at least that's a big part of their pitch. Um, but uh, Dave and Rich are just delightful hosts. They get really good guests on, <laughs> um, and they're just an interesting listen every single episode. Um, so I would definitely recommend High Shelf Gaming. You can find them, I think, pretty much anywhere. I listen to them on iTunes. Um, they've got a Discord. They've got a, a Facebook group. You can check them out several different places, and uh, I think you'll really enjoy it. Awesome. Cool. Troy, anything you've got for us? Uh, well, I'm going to kind of piggyback on yours because I... I happened to listen to the uh, the podcast episode that you're probably chuckling about on Hive Shelf Gaming, and uh, I have added them to my playlist as well, along with Onyx Pathcast. Ooh, what's that uh, about? Yeah, I uh, well, the the episode that I listened to had Travis Leg uh, talking about uh, Scarlands, mm. and uh, I'm not even sure how I stumbled across it at this point. I don't remember, but, uh, yeah, two, two great podcasts and, uh, you know, I have, I have plenty of time right now, so, uh, I need more podcasts to listen to. Don't we all? That's, that's don't, a daily, don't. that's a daily need. <laughs> exactly. Well, I can exactly. add something to this list too, if any, if everybody's okay with that. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course. So there's this, uh, there's this YouTube series that I've been a fan of for some time now called uh, Monarch Factory. Uh, Del Kingsmill is the person that runs it. Mm. She is a wonderful sort of personality for YouTube. Uh, very quirky, very fun to listen to. She mixes a lot of homebrew D&D stuff with uh, studies in mythology. And I honestly like her mythology stuff more than I like the D&D stuff because I feel like I can pull more from my D&D games from her mythology stuff. But uh, she's just a wonderful person to watch on YouTube and just use as kind of inspiration sponge for myself yeah you can i i i listen to her too and i haven't listened in a while but i really like her stuff um i think she's kind of tied in with matt colville at least a little bit or maybe that's where i just found her i don't know well colville treated or colville retweeted some of her stuff or called her out in one of his videos and that gave her a boost in popularity gotcha and they know they know each other so they run the same social circles but She's sort of her own thing. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, and and what what was her name again, or what was the name of her channel? I, I may have missed that. Uh, Monarchs Factory. Monarchs Factory. Okay. But cool. Dale Kingsmill. Cool. And I'll try to make sure that all of these uh, props or promotions are in the show notes of our episode. So, if you listeners want to check any of these things out, you can check them out there. Um, so, before we sign off here, David. Um, where can people go, obviously on Kickstarter, but how can they find your Kickstarter um, and uh, what would you like to kind of close out with there? If you're specifically looking for the Kickstarter, go on to Kickstarter. We're in the tabletop game section. You can find us under Knights of the Shadow Realm. Uh, if you're looking to have a conversation with me, uh, just reach out to me on Twitter at David Barentine. It's going to be the easiest way to contact me, have a conversation, start something up there. And I am really quick to respond because I enjoy people having a conversation with me, especially in these times of uh, social distancing and isolation. 
awesome. And I would go ahead and add that if you want samples of uh, David's work, you can get them in a couple different ways. Um, you can go to the Kickstarter and you can download a preview of this campaign that he's putting forth right now. You can also go onto the DMs Guild and you'll see several different products that he's released in the past on there. Um, so there's definitely plenty of options and I would recommend all of them. David's an excellent writer. All right, guys, I think that's going to do it for this episode of Bite Size Gaming, the podcast from Zach, John, Troy, and David. We will see you next time. Have fun, guys.